What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tasha Robinson. On last week's episode, we talked about Adaptation, a Charlie Kaufman scripted, Spike Jones directed film starring Nicolas Cage as a fictionalized version of Charlie Kaufman and a wholly fictionalized version of his brother Donald. It's an exploration of the themes of its ostensible source material, Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, and a reflection on the process of creation and Hollywood expectations. There's a lot of adaptation DNA in the unbearable weight of massive talent, as we'll no doubt cover in our discussion. But its meta-energy is focused on the persona, on screen and off, of star Nicolas Cage. Directed by Tom Gormican and written by Gormican and Kevin Etten, the film began as an experiment. After working together on the one-season comedy Ghosted, the two paired to write a screenplay to prove they could write screenplays, whether or not the film ever got made, or Cage agreed to star in it. Cage initially said no, and it's not hard to see why. The Nick Cage of the film has reached the apparent bottom of a long slump. Desperate to break out of it, he practically begs for roles. He's estranged from his ex-wife, played by Sharon Horgan, and on not great terms with his teenage daughter, played by Lily Sheen. and. Echoing Cage's own well-documented financial troubles, he needs money, badly enough to say yes to a personal appearance at the home of a wealthy superfan named Javi, played by Pedro Pascal. It's at Javi's estate that he discovers he's in over his head, but his troubles predate his arrival. He's tormented by a younger version of himself who's disappointed that he's no longer the No Limits wild man he used to be. It's also easy to see why Cage eventually said yes to doing the movie. It's a clever, deeply affectionate film that takes its title seriously. Nick Cage is a comic character, but he's also a gifted actor. And the Nicolas Cage who plays him makes this clear, turning Nick into a soulful, three-dimensional character, trying to make peace with his past work, his downturn, his shortcomings, and the expectations of others. It can be goofy, but the film's not a goof. It takes Cage and Buer's own associations and attachment to the star four decades into his career seriously, or at least as seriously as a movie in which Nicolas Cage makes out with himself can. We'll be right back after the break. What's the worry here, Nick? You've lost some of your talent as an actor? No. (laughs) What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Tell the trades it was a tremendous honor to be a part of storytelling and myth-making. Ah, fuck, man, I'm driving through the hills. I'm sorry, one more time. 
we got another offer. It's a million bucks. It's to attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. I would never do that. It's the easiest gig ever. You play yourself. Welcome to Mallorca, Mr. Cage. The guy that owns this house, what's his name? Javi. Is Javi gonna want me to, uh... I am Javi. Nick Cage. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. Imagine me and you, I do. Is it too much? Okay. Is this supposed to be me? It's grotesque. I'll give you 20,000 for it. All right, so let's talk about The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a film I've tipped my hand. I, I enjoyed this film. What about everybody else? Uh, yeah, with reservations. The way I, th- I think about it actually is it is w- a Charlie Kaufman film as Donald Kaufman might write it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it, it feels, it, it's just good enough to make you wish that it were better, but it is still pretty good. Uh, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot actually while, while I was watching it and immediately after, although I, I will say it's been a, a week since I, I went to a screening of, of this film and I, I, not a whole lot of it has stuck with me. I think probably like the strongest memory I have of it at this point is just the scenes with Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal and sort of like the weird energy they uh, they bring out in each other, especially that Cage brings out in Pedro Pascal, who I've never really seen him in this mode. So it was kind of fun to see sort of the the shift in performance that Nick Cage perhaps brought brought out in him the sort of the central gag i don't that's maybe not quite this the, the conceit of the movie like you know it's smart it's clever and i i don't think like it loses that cleverness as it, like in how it incorporates that but i think it just like becomes less surprising and as the film progresses and uh it feels maybe a little bit like as the film progresses, it's struggling a little more to make that cleverness as pronounced as it feels at the beginning, and maybe gets a little a little sweaty about it. <laughs> yeah, I thought this film was entirely okay. Uh, <laughs> I really think that Pedro Pascal is a, an underappreciated comedic talent who, based on this film, should definitely be doing more comedic roles. No knock against his dramatic roles. I think he's just a really good and, and talented actor. But as Genevieve says, like I haven't seen him in this mode before. And it was really pleasing to see him in this mode. I feel like I've seen Nick Cage in all of these roles, in all of these modes before. And as with so many, you know, kind of mediocre to okay films, his verve and like commitment to bits can kind of enliven films that otherwise maybe don't entirely work. But this film feels to me like somebody's trying to emulate the Charlie Kaufman formula without having like any of the any of the genius behind it, you know, any of the mm-hmm. the commitment to the bit as it were. And I think maybe nothing in the film underlines that more for me than the the presence of Nikki, uh, Nikki Cage, the uh, reverse age Nicolas Cage that kind of lives in his head, who is an entertaining and definitely weird presence, but one that just doesn't really have any thematic weight or 
any recurring content that would make it understandable what he's doing in this film besides giving it kind of an extra bit of zazz. I just don't know why he has this uh, character living in his head, what causes the character to to come out when he does. It kind of feels like, all right, we haven't had, we haven't seen Nikki this act. It's time for Nikki's second act appearance. Now it's time for Nikki's third act appearance. It all just feels very mechanical. And that's how I felt about a lot of the screenplay here. I do wonder how Nikki plays to someone who has just immersed themselves in <laughs> Nicolas Cage's filmography mm. for for over a year, uh, and if he carries more thematic weight in uh, the context of someone deeply familiar with the progression of Nick Cage's career. I'll let Scott take this one. Uh, no, uh, um, yeah, a little bit. I, I, I his appearance down to his Wild at Heart T-shirt is a very specific reference <laughs> to a talk show appearance he made in the UK on a show called Wogan, which is either he, he comes out, does karate kicks, takes his shirt off, is it is it's either someone losing his mind on television or a pretty inspired piece of performance art or some combination of the two. It is on YouTube. Just Google, look for Nicolas Cage, Wogan, W-O-G-A-N, and, and take the five minutes to watch it. It's really quite an incredible thing. But I think that, that you know, Etten and Gormican did their homework. You know, Nicolas Cage began his career with, you know, first he didn't do interviews, and then he would talk about being uncomfortable with Hollywood projects because because he wanted to bring kind of a punk energy to what he did. He's someone who immediately after making Moonstruck went and made Vampire's Kiss. He felt like that was too conventional of a film. He needed to go and swerve in the opposite direction. Uh, so this is definitely someone who early in his career was deeply invested in the image of himself as a rebellious wild man. You know, I have no great insights into Nicolas Cage's psyche, but he's older now. And if you read interviews with him, he's a lot more reflective. And I think that, you know, I, I don't think the Nicolas Cage we see in this film is the real Nicolas Cage. But I think there are elements of having grown up and grown past that wild man phase while still being haunted both by the person he used to be and also the fact that the person he used to be has been immortalized on you know on screen and it's still kind of the locked in default image that that some people have of you despite growing a little older and amassing a body of work and amassing a lot of life experience that have moved past that phase of your life i i think it works I don't, i'm sure it's every appearance of nikki is comic gold but i i do like those moments the Nikki character should have been named Miles Lovecraft, right? Keith? <laughs> yes. Cage's uh, proposed alter ego, Miles Lovecraft. I, Miles I think that Lovecraft. might have been t- been too deep cut of a reference uh, for <laughs> even for for the target audience of this film. Though I will say, I will say a couple of things to this film's favor. One is that it it actually really does dig into Cage Arcana. It's not just the obvious stuff, which I appreciate. I appreciate just that we open with this conversation he's having with David Gordon Green who is not identified as David Gordon Green, who who you would have to know directed Cage and Joe, uh, right? Again, not mentioned, but kind of great that he's, he, he's in the movie. And, and uh, you know, if you know Cage's work, he can kind of bring that and, and know Gordon Green's work, he can bring that to the table. 
And then you also have payoffs, like like uh, one of my favorite moments of the movie, where where Pedro Pascal is excited because he knows from the from the uh, making of featurette on the Gone in sixty seconds <laughs> DVD that the Cage could could uh, drive this uh, car really fast. So I thought that was uh, pretty great. Uh, but having watched what, that same featurette as part of my my research, uh, yes, I appreciate that joke. Too. Oh my god, that's yeah, you dug deep, Keith. You dug deep. Well, speaking of digging deep. Like, Keith, I'm just very curious how this movie plays to somebody who's watched all of the Cage movies recently in that it's so referential. Like, there's enough stuff that I caught that I started to feel like there's probably uh, like 10 times as many things I, I didn't catch. And when I was sort of reading up a little bit on some of the reaction to the film, there were things like the moment where he takes a beer and like walks into the pool and Pedro Pascal pulls him up out of the pool is like a shot reference to Leaving mm-hmm. Las Vegas, which I wouldn't have remembered because I saw Leaving Las Vegas when it came out and haven't seen it <laughs> since. Uh-huh. I'm just wondering if you you ended up feeling like the whole movie is full of moments like that, that people aren't going to get unless they're deeply steeped in Nick Cage movies, like on a shot for shot basis. Yeah, I mean, they're in there. I don't I think that's really one of the, the subtler ones there. I don't, I don't think it's that subtle because it, it is a, a fairly well-known shot perhaps if you haven't seen it in 20 plus years maybe not as familiar but i mean i i think it the wogan thing is is a pretty is a really deep cut i think most of the other cuts are fairly you don't have to have written a book about nicholas cage to get all of them <laughs> i don't think although who knows i probably missed references myself uh, as well i, I do well, like and, the, and there there's some like non-film meme uh meme references uh like the the sequin pillow uh mm-hmm. you know oh, the sure. sequin face pillow and um so which makes its appearance in the the sort of cage shrine <laughs> vault it, and i feel like the pillows uh, having looked at you know cage paraphernalia i think that that pillow uh and variations of it is probably the most gr- grotesque example so it was a really good choice to to kind of stand in for for that whole you know unofficial merchandise world of, of kgiana mm-hmm. that sequin pillow would be fine if it didn't turn into like nick cage with huge bloody wounds across his face when you swipe it the wrong way like the fact that the sequins are all red on the other side and like any disruption of them them lying with their nap in the right direction just produces like like blood red splotches is that's pretty disturbing i will say that though though i think one of the crucial saving graces of this movie is that it does respect cage so much like you know as an artist uh, you know as somebody who is really struggling in a sincere you know way to challenge himself to remain relevant to be passionate about what he's doing uh, to need all these things to have this true artistic spirit it doesn't take any of that as a joke because i think there's a there's a way of understanding cage as a joke and it can be uncomfortable to watch sometimes I mean, there, there was a, we had a, uh, even during Keith's screening uh, d- double feature at the music box there were some moments during this during face off where it's just like ah what stop laughing right now, people it's like it's like <laughs> you know you're just like you're laughing at the wrong stuff you, you know there's a lot of stuff that you should be laughing at but you're not like you're this is uh Nicholas Cage himself is not not a joke he's a serious actor who also you know is willing to go far on on a limb 
comedically and and is uh, and just and dramatically and just give you something large and and sometimes silly and and uh and audacious and funny but ultimately this is a real actor and I, and i think that's kind of a an important thing for the, this movie to get right because i think it could easily have been entirely a put on entirely a joke and it's it's not yeah that's what i was afraid it was going to be and i think that it's actually walks that line really well where it makes you know it definitely has jokes in there about his financial troubles and spending habits and the fact that he's you know not starring in a-list films anymore but you're it does take him seriously and i think Again, I think they did their research, whereas I think that cage squares with the cage that you read interviews with and as he presents himself. I mean, who knows who he I, I have no idea who he is behind closed doors, but I do, you know, he talks about being, you know, he talks very seriously about acting and I think he's got the career to, to back it up. And, you know, having watched the last decade of Cage's work, I mean, there's some there are some gems in there. There's some really you know, some good films that perhaps got a little overlooked. There are films that aren't good at all. And there are some near misses and, and, and ambition that doesn't quite come, you know, come together and work with an interesting director like Paul Schrader and Larry Charles. that doesn't, doesn't quite gel, but he's giving it his all. I mean, he's a ser- he's, he's, there's a serious commitment to whatever he does. You know, I think, I think this film gets that about him. And I think that's a large part of why it works. And I think in some ways, I feel like it's kind of perhaps a way for him to, you know, be in on the joke while giving it a punchline. I mean, this film in some ways, I kind of hope is is sort of the the end of of the the meme cage and the joke cage and the, the reflexive, you know, chuckles that his his name raises thanks to like super cuts and, and of, of the big moments, his performances and things like that. Who knows? Oh, I I mean, I definitely don't think this is going to be the end of anything. I mean, yeah, like he has he has to live with that library, you know, the the library of performances. That's what people know him for. I, I don't know why this would put paid to anything. Well, I don't, don't think it's definitive n- enough. Always know the performances. They know the moments that turn up in like, you know, from the Wicker Man and, and Zandalee <laughs> and things like that that turn up in, in super cuts. And, and the, a lot of those. OK, not Zandalee, but but a lot of those movies play much better and, and much different in context. Not the Wicker Man, though. Not the Wicker Man, no. OK, fine. <laughs> Let me ask you this question, Keith, because because mm-hmm. you have been to cage places that nobody else has been. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that commitment you talk about, the seriousness uh, of Cage, the, the the effort that he brings to his movies, does that extend to the films that he has made in, say, Romania? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, it does. I mean, there are a couple of performances in films like Left Behind. There's a film called Rage, which I think is a real low point for him. There's a couple other of uh, VOD things, specifically VOD things from the beginning of his ventures into that sphere of filmmaking, uh, where he feels a little less fully present. But I'm we're really talking about a couple of films, and and the rest of the time, I mean, he's there. Part of what made me want to do the book as kind of a like, oh, let's see if this is actually worth pursuing. I, I pulled a couple of random later, like mid-2016 films that you get at Redbox off the shelf uh, and and give them a look. And they, they weren't good, but he is good in them. I mean, he is really giving it his all, fully invested in the character, 
doing some interesting things, you know, elevating the material as much as, as one person can. I do think it's also in terms of sort of, you know, whether this will, as as Keith Hope sort of like put to bed a certain perception or, or era of our, of our cage appreciation, I do think it's important to note that like, this like the happy ending of this movie is is a movie it's this movie (laughs) you you know like it spends the whole movie kind of doing this sort of fun weird like Nicolas Cage digression but then in the end it comes back down to a movie a good movie that that people like you know and I think sort of where we are in Cage's career like it's interesting to me that this comes on the heels of Pig which I think is probably the most rapturous response he's gotten in a while you know and and obviously it's not incorporated here by virtue of timing and I don't know it probably wouldn't fit Kind of spoils the narrative, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. Like I feel like we are maybe we have already moved past that stage, and this kind of maybe feels like a, a remnant of it. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just influenced by the fact that my very good friend put out a, a book about Nicholas Cage's <laughs> career recently, and coupled with Pig. But I, I don't know. What am I being over generous? I just feel like this movie, I I feel like it's sloppy in a lot of pretty key ways. And the fact that this Nick Cage, who's a fictional Nick Cage, shares all of Nick Cage's big hits and yet at the same time is a, a failure, even though the movie doesn't feel very placed in time, to me just kind of feels like something that the the movie is not interested in addressing in any way. I, I don't think that Pig is being taken into consideration here, but I don't think that there's a philosophy behind it. It just doesn't fit the kind of ill-formed fiction that's going on here. Like, one of the things sort of walking into this movie that I kind of had problems with was like, okay, Nick Cage is Nick Cage. He's still the Nick Cage that made The Rock and, and Face Off. He's still internationally famous. But he can't get a role. He's considered a reject and he's miserable. And also he's surrounded by extremely recognizable movie stars, none of whom are actually playing themselves. I can't, I'm very glad that I did not revisit adaptation before seeing this movie because I think adaptations, like the quality at which it goes into some of these questions of, of like symbolism and parallelism just highlights the degree to which unbearable weight of massive talent feels a little unfinished and unformed. Yeah. But this is a couple drafts away, right? Yeah, exactly. I just like a couple drafts and a couple concepts in terms of how did Nick Cage get to be 98% of the Nick Cage we know and yet still be, you know, in debt, miserable and unable to get a job. That's sort of a, a thing that I struggled with. And then Neil Patrick Harris walking in and he's not Neil Patrick Harris. At that point, you're like, okay, what what is the fiction of, of this movie exactly? I can't speak to the miserable aspect of it, but he was apparently in, uh, still in debt as until a year and a half or so ago. And in terms of getting roles, I mean, he really was taking the roles he could. It's particularly when, you know, he felt the need to work at a pace that would, you know, pay off some of that debt. But also he's someone who talks in interviews about not being comfortable not working. So, you know, if you if you want 
to keep working, you're just going to move from one project to another. And that's, that's what you have. So I, I, you know, he's not broken living in, in what they're not calling the Chateau Marmont, but, but clearly is a Chateau Marmont. Uh, but you know, it's, it's not light years away from, from his situation in some ways. What's kind of fascinating about him is he's kind of a, a lead actor who, who, who has the mentality of a character actor. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea, sure. the idea of just of 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 making movies as a job, as mm-hmm. something where you just go from gig to gig to gig, that's not star talk. That's not lead actor talk. And in Nick Cage is the lead actor in movies. He's not a he's not a supporting player much of the time. He's he's he has to be. He's front and center. Yeah, right. very um, rare exception. Yeah. And so, so, and so, it becomes a it becomes a philosophical sort of quandary then about about how does he how does he stay a star, <laughs> you know? Because the, because characters actors don't have to worry about that. Well, and far be it for me to like tell a movie how to how to be a movie, but I I did uh, <laughs> uh, to kind of to go back to the criticism of like you know maybe this needed a a few more drafts. Um, I was reading an interview with Cage in the Hollywood Reporter uh, where he notes that uh, uh, originally they were initially talking about that Nikki character being uh, like Cameron Poe from Con Air instead of this you know Wogan Wild at, at Heart uh, era. Cage, and as and as far as like sort of the dissonance Tasha is talking about of like this huge star Cage, how he fits in this world, I, I almost think that making that second Cage a personification of that movie star Cage, and le- and letting the the real the Nick of of this movie uh, represent the more tortured artist, uh, or you know, or, or character actor, uh, better better yet, might have made that tension a little more clear. I don't know. I think maybe stronger than that would have been if there were just a bunch of different versions of him, because mm-hmm. there are so many versions of actual Nick Cage that we know. Like he's kind of famous for. There's the the like serious actor artist who showed up for pig and leaving Las Vegas. There's, you know, the, the over the top, like frothy mouthed wild man of mom and dad that people love to see show up. There's like the, the wonky dude who will be in anything. There's the, you know, the wild at heart era, kind of like swaggering, hip shaking, like young buck raring to go. There's the tortured artist we're talking about. Like, I don't know that the movie would have been improved by him being followed around by like a cloud of of 10 Nick Cages, (laughs) but I could easily see it being like a triumvirate of three that show up at different times that have different motives for him and different desires for him. And that being an element of him being pulled in different directions, which I don't know if Nick Cage processes it that way, but a lot of the people that have watched him throughout his career see his career as being pulled between these these different poles and these different personas. And many of them have a favorite. And I think maybe giving them personas and and arguments to be made about why they're the important Nick Cage might have given this more depth than it has and made the Nikki character more than just kind of a, a one trick pony with a single thing to contribute. I, I, don't, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I don't think necessarily it's just such a good idea to, to have more, more uh, versions of that character. I mean, I think it's reasonably effective, this device, not huge, wholly effective, but reasonably effective to have this reminder of his youth and the wildness of his youth in that original 
you know impulse to be a certain type of unbridled actor and and, and there's a there's a tension a productive tension between that kind of youthful soul that that is still you know it's still sort of is restless and within him and, and the older version of himself the one who's been through a lot who's who can't be you can't he can't be that guy anymore uh but but he's still he's still hearing that guy i, I think it makes it sense that it's just a conversation between those two people um rather than multiple versions of of cage i can almost feel the the desire to move on to connections just because mm-hmm. there's so much to talk about between these two movies much as we kind of like wrapped up last time with like yeah but let's talk about the rest of the cast i definitely feel like we should take in the non-cage elements of the cast here and one of my feelings there that that just kind of circles back to that feeling of this feels like a first draft that needed two more drafts is the way Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany mm-hmm. Haddish are used in this movie. Mm, yeah. It really feels to me like this movie got edited pretty sharply at some points in just with the mentality being let's get to the action quicker at the expense of developing some fairly important plot points, like the cut from the three of them in the van to Nick Cage off on like a a heist adventure felt like, you know, a scene missing card to me. And Tiffany Haddish's disappearance from the the film at the end. I also just found. Well, and Ike Barinholtz's. Well, Ike Barinholtz's character, I think, had pretty clearly been killed. Killed. Yeah. He's he's the way he's sprawled bonelessly in that chair. I'm fairly sure he he was dead. 100 percent. Tiffany Haddish took a a bullet in the shoulder, which is exactly what happened to Pedro Pascal. Uh, Mm. There's there's no reason that she would have died. But the film is completely uninterested in her. You know, it, it just yeah. It I mean, I, I guess her. I just processed it as she also died, which is mm-hmm. why I, I I lumped them them together because it yeah. doesn't. Yeah, they're they're both they're funny people who are underutilized here clearly. But Pedro Pascal, man, Terrific. he was utilized, Not underutilized very yeah. very well. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, mean, I I think Tiffany Haddish and and Ike Barinholtz are both used very very well. They just feel like they got half their scenes cut out of the film. Mm, that's kind of what I mean. But yeah, but with Pascal, like the nice thing is like. You could almost take away the Nicolas Cage-ness of it and and have a buddy movie with those two. In fact, you know, I would not object to them pairing again. They're really they're really fun together. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. They're they're uh, LSD trip. uh, The like the 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 wall gag. Like it, it, (laughs) you know, it was it was very obvious. But I think they sold it. There is that moment when they're together, when they're talking animatedly about their screenplay, where they decide, you know, you can't just have a movie with with two guys being comedic together. Like everybody wants a plot where I I just found myself thinking, all right, I, I see what you're doing here. Thank you, meta movie. But maybe we could just have two guys being funny together because I don't care about your presidential election heist plot. I care about watching these two actors be entertaining together. This is it was by far the best part of the movie. And it felt like we moved on from it too quickly in the effort to Donald Kaufman it up and, you know, to get, get back to, to the exercise of car the chases and gun plays. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that stuff, can, that stuff's fine. It's whatever. But but uh, the third act, you know, you think you can't take away from the third act is is the gag with him and, and heavy makeup and that that whole sequence which, <laughs> was, which made me laugh it had, like i think it's sharon horgan's best moment in, in the movie too and, and that's uh that, that's funny stuff yeah i liked her i liked her she was yeah she's entertaining and she she gets some really good action i really object to the way that entire plot line was set up in terms of 
yeah, we're just going to hand wave everything away about how how in the world any of this makes sense, because we know you just want to see him in the goofy makeup doing the goofy role, which I did. It was fun, but it makes not yeah. a not a lick of sense. Hey, you know what? You know what just occurred to me, really, because I talked about this being kind of a Donald Kaufman, you know, a version of of a Charlie Kaufman script written, written by Donald Kaufman. This is really, this is actually Donald Kaufman somewhere, like because you, you have <laughs> Cage, you have Cage, you know, what is he? He's in the Chateau Marmont or something like that, right? At the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. just like, um, just like Stephen Dorff, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's in this this kind of existential stupor but you know of the sort that that charlie kaufman would feel perfectly happy marinating in but donald kaufman would not donald kaufman would have to imagine this version this that he would have to blow out that story and would have to would have to throw him into you know mayorka <laughs> with uh <laughs> with this super spy story so you know this meta super spy story so it feels kind of maybe like that uh somewhere would have been an interesting pairing with this movie as well <laughs> Do we need to go back and re-record the whole first uh, part of this podcast? No, we do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, listeners should know that we record these uh, back-to-back. The, the illusion of uh, a week passing is just... Uh, that's uh, showbiz magic. Trickery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scott, really, Scott, well, don't... Uh, like, and and us acknowledging it is very meta. Right? Yeah, if you're going to let them in on the behind-the-scenes thing, like at least do it symbolically with like with characters and uh, like complicated screenplay things. Don't just come out and flat tell them. Yeah, this, this all seems to me like a good point at which to move on Yay. to connections. Uh, so we will do that and talk about adaptation and the unbearable weight of massive talent after the break. Can you just stop stalling and answer the question? What is your third favorite movie of all time? Paddington 2. What? Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Paddington 2. Connect those dots. I mean, I don't want to be a snob, but... I cried through the entire thing and made me want to be a better man. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, I think, I guess maybe the, the, the most obvious one is Nicolas Cage as as two characters. Although, you know, uh, to the duality is a lot more central in adaptation to uh, than, than it is in Unbearable Weight. But let's talk about that. What You know, we're getting four cages across two films. What, what's what's the effect of that? Uh, it's great. I love seeing all that experience. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly lets him stretch. You know, it, it's certainly that, that kind of multiplicity that I was talking about earlier has been just such a consistent element throughout his career. So like seeing him in one film play a, like a self-hating, awkward, nebbish and an, an outgoing, like cheerful, popular, upbeat guy, seeing him in another movie playing like a downcast older guy who's feels his career's at an end and uh, like an upbeat, probably coked up kid who's high on his own farts. Like there's just, there's an element of fun in that, you know, in watching him play two radically different people playing entirely opposite each other. He's such a big presence in so many films. It takes a pretty big presence to keep up with him. And just making that other presence also Nick Cage, I I think is maybe just a, a quality idea in and of itself. 
one of the things I like about the duality and, and adaptation specifically is that Charlie and Donald, like they are very, very different, but they are not really opposites. Tasha, you just talked about how Donald was like, you know, outgoing and, and popular and everything. And like, yeah, by comparison, but he does still have this sort of innate sadness <laughs> to, to him. And that is, is uh, and it's really all there in Cage's performance and how he portrays him. Like the the first time we meet Donald, he's lying on the floor, <laughs> you, you know, in the, in the house he's squatting in. And, you know, he comes across as, as nice and sweet, but also like not a particularly charismatic person, you know, and again, the degree to which he is any of those things is strictly in relationship to Charlie. So it's really like, I think a really delicate, like amplification of certain traits in in each character. Whereas in uh, Unbearable Weight, like it's just like those characters are not really related to each other other than the fact that they are both supposedly the same person. But like the the performances are just you know, there, there's no real common thread to the performances other than that they are both supposed to be Nick Cage. I think there is one common thread, which is ego. I think that all four of these cages are connected with a, a string of ego. And that's sort of part of the theme there. You know, the fact that the only people that can keep up with them is them. The only people that are worth reflecting themselves back at themselves is them. With unbearable weight, it it just kind of feels like he has conversations with his younger self that he can't have with anybody else about his inadequacies and his hopes. In adaptation, it it sort of feels like Charlie dumps on anybody that comes near him, but he dumps most on Donald because Donald's closest to him. And Donald entrusts Charlie with all sorts of things because he looks up to him. In both cases, there just seems to be this sense that even if they're very different personalities, even if they're expressing their needs and their desires in very different ways because they're very different needs and desires, there's still... Like the narcissism that uh, Scott was talking about in part one, I think is there. I think anytime you have a character playing kind of two aspects of themselves, talking to themselves about themselves, there's an inherent reflection of narcissism that's very deliberate in both cases. And I, I think that there's nothing wrong with it. But I think it is sort of an exploration of like the inner life of a single person in both movies. In, in both films, though, these are these are not flattering depictions like charlie kaufman is very hard on himself very hard on himself and 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 not all that you know whatever, whatever we think of, of donald in relation to him that's not in in some ways it, it's it's a not always the most attractive character either we also get the same thing with nicholas cage here playing the modern nicholas cage as someone who's seen better days and has some deep flaws uh, as a person, primarily self-involvement that's made him neglect his, his family. And the younger self is just kind of a, um, an, an overbearing weirdo and, and, and egomaniac as well. I guess, you know, it's kind of the opposite of a, of a Mary Sue here. So what's, what's going on with all these sort of this uh, self-loathing on, on screen in, in both these films? I don't think the self-loathing doesn't really exist in the characters of Donald and of of Nikki, right? Those are entirely with with, with Charlie and It's with, not part of their personalities, but they're also like, you know, these aren't the most attractive creations either. either no, no. Them. Well, I mean that that's the thing too with with ad- adaptation uh, you know, as with being John Malkovich, the actors themselves, these glamorous people, you you your John Cusack's, your your Cameron 
uh, Diaz's uh, and, uh, and and Nick, Nick Cage are rendered very unflatteringly on screen, and there's nothing, you know, in terms of their their wardrobe and their their hair and makeup and all other stuff is, uh, you know, all everything, all all of that movie star vanity those movie star qualities are sort of stripped away uh that's not necessarily that's not really true of of the nick cage in unbearable weight um though there is that there is that self-loathing there is that sense of desperation that that's present in 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 that character the nick cage is is still at his age you know he has still has extraordinary presence in a way that the nick you know charlie kaufman adaptation does not while we're talking about unflattering depictions, is this where we uh, note the de aging effects in an unbearable <laughs> weight? How did that? How did that yeah. land? It? It's medium budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a thing. That's kind of a, the medium budgetness of unbearable weight is definitely a, a big negative. Uh, you know, not just in not just in that in that technology, which is really hard to pull off on a large budget, but the not entirely metafictional second rateness of the production kind of hits you a little bit because it does um, seem to exist. The action in Unbearable Weight maybe tries to suggest blockbuster Nicolas Cage, but in fact, maybe better is better reflects shot in Romania Nicolas Cage (laughs) instead. Uh, This is shot in Croatia. Pardon me. <laughs> oh, was it? Oh, actually, it was shot in Croatia. It was shot in Croatia. Croatia is stubbing in for for Spain. I mean, it looks. I, I've heard great. Th- I mean, Croatia. It looks. looks it looks incredible. lovely. Yeah, it, do, it really does. And I've heard. I've heard very nice things about people who have. You know, about anyway. Well, I don't know what Cro- Croatian, li- Croatian listeners, we love you. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, your country. Yeah, very beautiful. Very beautiful Croatia and uh, listeners. Uh, so to return to the the, yes, the connection, no, the, the connection no, here. I mean. Well, we've, you know, talking about sort of unflattering depictions of, of these characters, like I, I think we've been kind of dwelling on the, the cage part of that. But like, in terms of adaptation, like, it's Kaufman, who is, who is the, the, the character who is, you know, un, unflattering here. But I think like, in adaptation, and maybe to a, a lesser extent, in, in unbearable weight, like, the, I guess, redemption is in the existence of the movie itself like the redemption for that character is in the 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 movie we get you know and this like wonderful you know screenplay that that crystallizes and that we've seen him like quite literally slash metaphorically tear himself in two (laughs) to to make for us the way you know in the end it it comes together and it does sort of feel like this screenplay is a reflection of charlie kaufman the the person and that is sort of the redemption of the way he's been portrayed throughout the movie does that make sense it's very meta i know but i thought it would be appropriate here (laughs) it's a meta touch to to our discussion (laughs) and i think i think i think overall the connection to adaptation you know in unbearable weight just has just looks so thin <laughs> but by comparison i mean it's fascinating the, the contrast between the two is fascinating because because i think with uh, adaptation you have donald and charlie are, are two parts of the same person and and in in an unbearable weight it's it's two eras of the same person so there's that interesting separation of time but I don't think there's a huge amount of rigor <laughs> invested in that Nikki 
side character at all really he's just kind of he's almost more like you know humphrey bogart in played against sam right hmm. the the woody allen film uh the harold i should herbert ross uh film uh that was written and starred woody allen i mean it's kind of like that of just kind of he he's much more kind of a voice in his head than a fully realized conceit yeah i would go further and say that i just i don't see any evidence that there's any particular thought to Nikki's presence at all in this film. I think and there it, could be. It, there there could be, but I don't see it. It feels to me like in some ways it's an extended riff on adaptation in the same way we're seeing riffs on on various other films that he did throughout this movie. It feels like something that once they realized they they could do as a as a kind of an adaptation reference or riff, they seized on the idea and liked it and expanded it, but just didn't really put any thought into why it was there or what it was accomplishing. It certainly highlights the character Nick Cage's feelings of inadequacy and, and concern and the sense of like where he came from. But uh, yeah, just in terms of the function that he plays in the story, he seems just like a random bonus that's a lot more fun than a lot of the third act in particular. But not very conceptual, not very integrated into the story, which is just a kind of a problem I had throughout. Yeah. The other thing too, it's just, I, I, I mean, I, I think I'm so, it, you know, because this is about Nick Cage and maybe about what we know about him. It's like, I'm so much more interested in what he's thinking about himself as a creative being and his process and all of that stuff. I don't really care if he's neglected his family and his kid and mm. I mean, that's that kind of stuff is just not really all that resonant. I don't know how you all felt about that. Well, there's also a question of whether it reflects anything that's that's actually real. Like one uh, of even the, if it does, I don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> one of the suggestions that for for a pairing here, and boy, we were not short at all on on pairing ideas, pairing possibilities for this, but John Claude Van Damme's JCVD came up as uh, one possible. And that feels like a film that is a lot more thoughtful and reflexive about a particular actor's place in in Hollywood, like place in cinema and place in the world. I think that there are other like even being John Malkovich, which is in many ways a very silly movie where John Malkovich is playing quote unquote John Malkovich rather than an actual person there's I I think almost a sense more of like weight and reality of like what it would be like to be that person in that very silly film than there is here about who Nick Cage is I don't know to what degree adaptation reflects Charlie Kaufman's like real actual feelings about himself and I, I know that it does reflect an actual struggle with the screenplay for for Orchid Thief but I don't know how much of that kicking himself is is real and how much of it is a performance to heighten the movie. But in the end, I feel like we come away at least feeling like we know Charlie Kaufman, the person from Adaptation, a lot better than we feel like we come away knowing Nick Cage, the person from Unbearable Weight. Yeah, the family stuff is is the, probably the most screenwriterly element to it, the most Donald Kaufman uh, sort of element to it as well, and it doesn't really bear much resemblance to Cage's own private life, in, insofar as I, you know, what's in the public record anyway. 
The broad strokes are probably true, though, right? I mean, like uh, the the idea that he's, you know, that he's at, you know, an inflection point in his career. He's has debts. He has. Oh, I just you know, I, I meant specifically the, the the family stuff. Um, is yeah, is, yeah. It doesn't really not line in up. its not its not its particulars, but you know, I think there's been a little bit of reported rockiness on 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 that front. Yeah, um, and obviously, and obviously, the debt problem is is pretty real. Right. Right. But the song part, the birthday song part, that's all made up, right? Uh, <laughs> no, that's all taken directly from life. Uh, you know, if if the tension in the film is he's neglected his family because of his career, uh, Cage actually turned down both the the Matrix and um, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the right? Rings, right? In part because he, he did not want to leave his his uh, his uh, son behind. So there's that. Oh, there you go. I feel like we would be shorting ourselves if we didn't at some point just address the fact that both of these movies are heavily structured around characters describing the mechanics of writing a screenplay and the screenplay that they're describing is also the screenplay that we're seeing. You know, both of these movies are structured very specifically to have characters say, well, we need to do this by this point in the the screenplay and then the movie does exactly the thing they were describing. And it's, I think it's done a lot better in adaptation in unbearable <laughs> weight. Again, I feel like it's, it's mostly there to copycat a, an earlier, better movie, but there is a, a certain humorous element to characters saying, all right, well, we've got to make sure there's no DSS machina. And then of course there is one, or, well, we've got to make sure that there's a big, uh, like third act emotional family twist. And then of course there's going to be one. Both of these movies are kind of the the usual Hollywood examines what it's like to be in Hollywood stories. The boy making movies sure is hard, isn't it? Like movie making. And and both of them are kind of built entirely around the idea of what does it take to make a screenplay? Let's examine that while doing it at the exact same time. I was never clear. Maybe I was just maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but like what what was the state of pedro pascal's screenplay i mean because it feels like once they start collaborating quote unquote that it's just almost feels like well they threw out his screenplay yeah, and started they're starting over. from scratch uh, okay but but that, it, that the process is just then to improvise a script that have that has no real that where you don't know what it's going to do at all well they're talking through the script that they're going to write it's it's kind of the classic writer in instead of actually sitting down and doing the work of writing as we see charlie coffin banging his head against uh that process over and over you sit and brainstorm with somebody and you t- the two of you convince each other of your genius like oh th- these are great ideas that we're having we're not <laughs> going to actually together yeah we're not but actually going to do the rigorous part of, of writing stuff down they're just spitballing throughout the whole movie and then we're seeing the things that they spitball happen as a result of what they're spitballing effectively and it and it does kind of feel reflective of just I guess the story of this this movie getting made where uh, Tom Gormican and Kevin Etten like wrote a screenplay kind of to see if they could <laughs> you know like it's a it's, um, it's a screenplay as as challenge you know and I think the lack of sharpness uh in the movie is maybe reflective of that sort of uh that 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 approach that that like let's figure this out as we go along whereas in adaptation you know it's specifically charlie kaufman following up being john malkovich you know and doing a 
form that he in writing a, a form of screenplay and adaptation that he that he hadn't done at that point. And there's like a lot more pressure on him right from the get go. And the his journey in the movie reflects that. You know, there there's a lot less like fun and easygoingness to it, and a lot more you know self inflicted pressure and, and, and loathing than we see between the the two of them in an unbearable weight where it's well it's a put on first of all like it, you know the the reason they're writing this screenplay is because Nicolas Cage needs to hang around longer to help foil this presidential kidnapping plot I don't know um you know <laughs> but uh, Genevieve there's now there, he's an international he's the, the we're talking about international gun running and there's a right. candidate who would be unfavorable to his views, whose whose daughter is being kidnapped, so he will drop out. This is all very the, important. Let, yes, letting the, letting the more favorable candidate uh, win. Also, yes. the CIA has the the foggiest notion of what it's doing as far as uh, actually surveilling people. They none, have... none, none of this matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, congratulations none, none on retaining matters. that, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think to circle back to what you're saying with the meta touches. And the way, you know, they would comment on the action, both movies kind of comment on the action as they were going. I feel like in adaptation is, as with much of it, it's very thought through and clever and ultimately kind of profound and, and uh, you know, reflects back on, makes you think about why we tell stories and how we tell stories, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in, in Unbearable, it's cute. I mean, it's cute, <laughs> you know. I mean, and I think that's kind of the difference between these two movies. I, I like *Unbearable Weight* quite a bit, but but you know, it's 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 a good time, you know. Whereas adaptation is is kind of uh, is something else entirely. Yeah, it's the difference between f something that y is fun and something that you like actually admire. And I could see why the people behind *Unbearable Weight* would try to emulate adaptation because it's it's emulation worthy. It's so innovative. It's so creative. It's so constructed but what they've come up with is something that's yeah that's kind of fun it does feel a bit just a little unworthy of cage in the end like because it is such a summary work it's such a it's a you know he's the real nicholas cage is four decades into a, uh, his career he, he has a you know somebody wrote a book about him um <laughs> uh, you know i mean like there, there's a there's a there's a lot to re reflect on and uh, you kind of hope that in its in its kind of zany way that the movie is going to be is going to be up to that challenge and it just kind of barely sort of is and it isn't as great as cage it's not it's not up to that to hit to that uh status i guess it doesn't is it is it doesn't hit it's triple a it's not the major leagues i think maybe what symbolizes that more than anything else in unbearable weight is the sequence where nick cage is talking to nikki and they start making out and nikki is yelling like nick cage smooches good and so it turns out that that was inserted into the film it wasn't in the script because Nick Cage thought it would be fun. And his justification for thinking it would be fun is that's sort of kind of what we're doing here, right? It's like, it's sort of like I'm making out with myself. And so, you know, they actually did it in the movie. And like, that kind of seems to be the level of thought that went into a lot of this is like, you know, it'd be, you know, it'd be entertaining. Hey, you know, it'd be symbolic is if I made out with myself. And it's like, 
oh, okay, that's that's certainly an idea. But is there anything more to it than that? Oh, no, there really isn't. This was the whim of a moment and we went with it. What what a what is just a kind of a crappy final shot to or final moment of this camera yeah, kind of I, going up to that to that kind of LA skyline and then and then going back to then going back to that weird sort of Nikki moment from was it a Nikki moment or, or a Cage yeah, moment? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, it's I, that like, was, really that's that the little the movie? Little audio inserted in. Yeah, that's I think the final shot's fine until then and then it's like, yeah, this is one one joke too many. One one joke over the line. But you know, I, I again it's I think it's a fun movie and 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 it, it is Cage getting to be in on the joke and perhaps I, I perhaps putting it to bed a little bit. Thinking of putting things to bed, I I think it's time to put this podcast to bed and perhaps put myself to bed. We're recording this fairly late in the evening. Uh if you want to watch adaptation, which which we, we highly recommend, uh it is streaming on HBO Max and rentable through the usual service. And it's also available on Blu-ray and DVD, both for purchase and from your local library. Uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent is in theaters now that's it for this edition of the next picture show but we'll be back next week with a new pairing genevieve you want to set us up for our next episodes which we're dropping on may 10th and may 17th in the last marvel cinematic universe movie spider-man no way home dr strange tried to work his magic to keep the public from knowing spider-man's true identity the good news he succeeded the bad news, he cracked open the multiverse, allowing for a visitor from alternate realities to invade the MCU and create all sorts of chaos. Now, with the new film Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the series has brought in the ultimate chaos agent and director Sam Raimi, whose hyperkinetic style made him a cult hero with the Evil Dead movies, and brought energy to his own Spider-Man series with Tobey Maguire. But Raimi also has an original Doctor Strange-like hero in his past. Inspired by old-school Universal monster movies, Raimi's 1990 film Darkman is about an unusually volatile superhero whose actions aren't always on the straight and narrow. Liam Neeson stars as a scientist whose experimental skin grafts come in handy after gangsters try to burn him alive, and he uses the grafts to disguise his appearance. The multiverse may not be opened in Darkman, but on our next set of episodes on Darkman and the new Doctor Strange, there will be plenty of madness. For now, we welcome your feedback on adaptation, the unbearable weight of massive talent, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and come talk to us at Patreon, where you'll find feedback, letters, and discussion. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. Boy, I have been writing a lot about everything everywhere all at once. I have been <laughs> interviewing those uh, those filmmakers a lot. I've also been talking to Robert Eggers about The Northman. And I now know some things about penises on airplanes that I think you're going to be very, very happy to see. <laughs> you can find that at Polygon.com under my byline. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And I also recently appeared on Pop Culture Happy Hour, one of our favorite podcasts of all time. Thanks to our former colleague, Stephen Thompson. Uh, there, I was talking with Glenn Weldon about Our Flag Means Death and my huge fandom for that series and many, many other people's huge fandom for that series. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in uh, New York Times and Vulture and The Ringer, where I also did a big old thing on Robert Eggers, uh, an essay though, nothing about airplane penises or anything what? like that. <laughs> Sorry, and then and then um, and and of course, uh, uh, along with our host uh, Keith Phipps, I 
have the reveal uh the our uh newsletter you can find that at the reveal.substack.com uh, i recently did a list of the of the 10 best rom-coms that you might want to check out <laughs> uh, <laughs> really what uh, what what possibly could have predicated that, i don't Scott? know i don't know i just i just was inspired you know just one of those random be- bits of in- inspiration uh genevieve I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith, take us home. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000, where I post my various uh, writings and such. Uh, these include, of course, the the reveal, uh, the reveal.substaff.com, where you can find Scott and, and me. I, I recently launched a series that's going to take you all the way through the 80s, one quarter of each year at a time. And you can find my writing at places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, and TV Guide. And I have a book. We might have mentioned that. It's called The Age of Cage. Uh, it is, uh, it's the, you, get, you get the whole Cage career up to and including at least a reference to the unbearable weight of massive talent, if not the film itself. We did not, you know, I had to close the book on the book before uh, seeing this film. It is available wherever books are sold. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Bitch, I'm a national treasure. I make it rain in the desert. I got an octopus. Yes, I got a pyramid. You think I'm extra? I'm on some Nicholas Cage shit. Good call, baby doll.